Why can't we have uh, other doctors to examine this autopsy, huh? Why can't we have that? As a matter of fact, who did the autopsy, huh? Who was the medical examiner? Dr. Bill Clinton? Who? Dr. Ted Bundy? Who did the medical exam? That's all I want to know. That's all I want to know. And if you really believe Epstein died from suicide, then I guess the founding fathers are Jim Carrey, Tom Arnold, Sean King, Al Sharpton, and Michael Moore. That's Terrence Williams, the flaky actor and comedian whose tweet implying that convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's death from hanging in a Manhattan jail cell was the work of Bill and Hillary Clinton was retweeted by President Donald Trump. Williams, as you can tell from that clip, is unrepentant about his suggestion that the Clintons are implicated in murder. His tweet of that video came with the hashtag, the Clintons can't bully us. And that foul play could well be the cause of Epstein's death. And Trump, for his part, is unrepentant about retweeting Williams, calling him, quote, a very highly respected conservative pundit who is, quote, a big Trump fan and, by the way, has a half a million followers on Twitter. It was yet the latest example of the president's indulgence of wild conspiracy theories, now a recurring theme in American politics. How dangerous and poisonous is all this? We'll discuss with the author of a fascinating new book about conspiracy theories, and we'll delve into the latest developments in the Epstein saga. It's a case in which the evidence shows no support for the death-by-murder conspiracies floated by our president but which nonetheless raises many tantalizing questions. Questions we'll explore on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, since uh, we uh, took a few weeks off on vacation there, a few things happened in the news that we didn't get a chance to explore on Skullduggery. Just going down the list, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's suicide, Trump's tweet about it, suggesting that the Clintons might have been behind it, the mass shootings in Dayton and El Paso. Trump's proposed purchase of Greenland uh, and uh, his proclamation suggesting on Twitter that he is the king of the Jews. Um, Lots of material to uh, dissect here. Well, first of all, for the benefit of those people who are only listening to this podcast and are not watching on video, Isakoff and I came back from our respective vacations with beach beards. Yes. Um, Lots of hair. I thought maybe, you know, the change in our look, maybe that would presage some change in our president's behavior, you know, in our (laughs) political culture. But I guess that hasn't happened. Yeah, it was a a (laughs) crazy... Yeah, a uh, wild series of events there. and, um, but actually, the I mean, in a lot of ways, the craziest stuff was uh, was just, you know, right around the time we were getting back, which was the Greenland story. Yeah, yeah. And, and that one, you know, that story, I mean, that's sort of 
in some ways, that's a kind of a light, entertaining, funny story. Although it, not to the Danes, not to the Danes, and, to the and, Danish and, and it, it was minister, a mini right? uh, diplomatic crisis. But the one that really got me was this suggestion that Jews are disloyal for not supporting the uh, Republican Party and supporting uh, Donald Trump. At first, when he tweeted or when he said that. He was ambiguous about uh, disloyal to who or to what. Well, he was he was suggesting you disloyal to Israel, but uh, well, he didn't which say is that explicitly. The he same came thing back as the standard anti-Semitic canard. It of, is a of, corollary of to your own. I don't. Country. I disagree yeah. with that. I didn't, right. Anyway, I think it's a corollary to that classic anti-Semitic trope because what he's saying essentially is, if you're a Jew. You have to be lockstep with Israel's policy. Right. Remember, this is the president who, when he was addressing the Republican Jewish coalition <laughs> earlier to, this year, yeah. referred to everyone there as referred to Israel as your country. Or, well, he said and, your, and, prime and minister, your prime minister, right. Bibi Netanyahu. Right. This is an audience of American citizens who he's addressing and saying that your prime minister has said, you know, different things, whatever. But it's just the the way Trump thinks, right? I mean, he thinks in these stereotypical terms in which everybody is put into, you know, given a label and given an identity, yeah. uh, often based on their race or ethnicity. Yeah, there is um, a, there's an Archie Bunker quality right. to how he sees and, you know, how he sees people in sort of tribalized ways with all these stereotypes. And I think, didn't he at one point address, uh, was it some other Jewish organization, we talked about how you guys are so good at making money or <laughs> yeah, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah, no, Trump is, I mean, is Archie Bunker in the White House. There's no question about it. And if you have any doubts about that, go back, go on YouTube and just watch old episodes of All in the Family in which you will see Donald Trump's political philosophy just laid out in the words of, uh, of Archie Bunker Eva, uh, of Queens. Right. Melania is decidedly not Edith, though. Um, remember Edith? Yes, I do remember Edith. That's <laughs> right. Um, no, she's not. All right, so we want to talk about Epstein today on this show because, uh, you know, we all had the same reaction when we heard that he was allowed to commit suicide, to hang himself in his jail cell. The idea that the most high-profile defendant probably in the American judicial system at that moment could be left alone to do it is just staggering. It is. And you know, it's interesting. We've talked a lot about Bill Barr on this show, the attorney general, right. um, who's a very tough guy. And you know, he's been criticized a lot. And he always has an answer. He always seems totally confident. He's smarter than most of the members of Congress who are after him. And this is the one time where I think I, I don't know that I would say that he seemed rattled, but he certainly felt that he had to get out there really fast and acknowledge that this was a huge, huge fuck up. Right. And that he was going to have to deal well, with it. Well, this is something that happened on his watch as head of the Justice Department. And, you know, I think he recognized immediately that, you know, he had the ultimate responsibility here for correcting what went wrong. 
Yeah. The other reason that we're interested in Epstein, obviously, is because of the conspiracy theories that the suicide, and let's call it a suicide, fueled, you know, instantly. And this idea, and by the way, some of these conspiracy theories were on both sides. You know, there were the people who came out quickly and, you know, said that, uh, suggested that uh, the Clintons were behind this, just another right. another addition to the body, the Clinton, the Clinton body count. Clinton body count, yeah. uh, But you did hear people raising questions about whether Trump might have been involved right. in this or as well. Or Bill Barr, for or, that or, matter. Or, right? or, or yeah. Bill Barr. And, right. you know, it, it raises a lot of really important questions. Well, I should point about, out, just for uh, not to... F- feed conspiracy theories out there. But, you know, it's always fascinating, those little oddities that do. Barr's father was the head of the Dalton School that hired Jeffrey Epstein as a teacher. And then he later went on, after his days as Attorney General, Bill Barr, to the law firm of Kirkland and Ellis, which was the law firm of Ken Starr and Jay Lefkowitz, former White House domestic advisor under George Bush, who helped engineer that sweetheart deal that Epstein got from the uh, right. Uh, well, conspiracy US theories are about, in Miami. Conspiracy theories are about narratives and dot connecting. Right. And and once there is some hypothesis about what might have happened. Then it's easy to start connecting dots that seem to support the theory. That's right. that's what happens. I, you know, it, it, when I think about the this kind of age of conspiracy theories in the United States, and of course it's not new. I mean, there have been conspiracy theories going back to the founding fathers, mm-hmm. uh, but you know there are a lot of differences with social media, the ability to spread, the ability for conspiracy theories to move into the mainstream, and of course a president who kind of pathologically. Um, dabbles and and fuels them. But, you know, when I was a foreign correspondent for Newsweek and I was in the Middle East, I did some reporting from Italy, I was in these countries where, you know, conspiracy theories were just everywhere. I mean, it was just, you know, in in the Middle East, everything was spawned a conspiracy theory. And in Italy uh, also. And I always said to myself, you know, it's crazy. I mean, this this doesn't happen in the United States. You know, it exists, but it doesn't dominate the political culture. And so what is it about? The, and I wondered, what was it about those places? And, you know, it was weak political institutions, repressive governments, you know, no trust in the leaders, strong, you know, media that was dominated by, by the uh, government. And um, sure enough, some of those things are happening in this country. And so there are parallels. The other thing is, it's important to say, is that sometimes there actually were conspiracies. And uh, a, there is a danger, frankly, of going too far in the other direction and sort of dismissing everything as a conspiracy what, theory. What conspiracies do you well, have? Well, I'm, I'm actually thinking about the, the attack example, because Giulio Andreotti was the seven-time prime minister, post-war prime minister of, of Italy. And, you know, in Italy, governments lasted, by the way, one just fell, um, only been in right. power for six a months. Days ago. But, yeah. but Italian governments were in power, uh, I think, on average of for ten, 10 months, and then the coalition would fall apart and, you know, you'd have a new, new government. Andreotti was, became prime minister many or most of those times because the Sicilian mafia delivered the Sicilian vote to the Christian Democratic Party. That was the difference. So the mafia backed Andriotti. And there was a story when I was uh, living there about how Andriotti had secretly gone to Sicily and met with Toto Rina, the boss of bosses, and kissed his ring. 
And, you know, I don't know if that happened. There wasn't a picture of it. But it is demonstrably true that the mafia backed him politically. And so some conspiracies are real. Did you write this story? <laughs> oh, I did. A lot of people wrote that story. No, okay. Yeah. And well, it also reminds me of, you know, my days covering the drug war in South America where the drug cartels were totally had penetrated the Colombian government, the Mexican government and had uh, high level uh, officials right up to the very top exactly. uh, and, on and, its payroll. And these right. things happen, you know, in countries where the institutions are really weak and where criminal organizations can penetrate the government because you don't have a strong rule of law, you don't have a strong press, you you know, all of these different factors. And that is a significant part of, I think, what's at risk in, in our country over time. Could we become, you know, more like that? Well, it seems like we already are. But let's get to the facts of the Epstein case just to start out here. And um, we've got a good guest to start the discussion with. And we are now joined by Ellie Honig, former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, who knows a thing or two about uh, conditions at MCC, the jail where Jeffrey Epstein died. Ellie, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me, guys. So, look, a lot of conspiracy theories swirling around what happened to Jeffrey Epstein, a lot of legitimate questions that are still out there. Give us your take on where things stand right now with the Jeffrey, the now investigation into Jeffrey Epstein's death. Yeah, so I I think based on the, the reliably publicly reported facts, it does look pretty clearly like a suicide. Now, it looks like we're dealing with some serious organizational ineptitude, negligence, inexplicable negligence. But unfortunately, that is sort of part of life within the Bureau of Prisons, within the Metropolitan Correctional Center, the MCC here in Manhattan, which I know and have spent a lot of time in. Now, I don't say that as an excuse. I think there needs to be some serious accountability here, both on the line level, the MCC level, but all the way up the chain, including up to and including the attorney general as to how this could have happened. How could they have lost Jeffrey Epstein? How could they have lost the top priority, I think, high, most sensitive, highest profile single inmate that they had at that time? There's a lot of questions that need to be answered, but it's clear DOJ's digging in and digging in hard now. Right. And, and we've got evidence, very new evidence here, that there is actually a criminal investigation yeah. going on into what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And that's the news about subpoenas being issued, which is, to me, significant because it tells me they're looking at something beyond just the inspector general is going to come in and sort of do an autopsy, so to speak, but do a recreation and write a report. And here's here's our findings. That's one thing that's probably happening. But the fact that there are subpoenas issued tells us for sure. Subpoenas to who? To It's a, reportedly to about 20 different people who work within the MCC and the Bureau of Prisons. What's the crime? So, right, whenever you issue a subpoena as a prosecutor, first of all, that means there is a criminal investigation. If there's a subpoena, by definition, a grand jury, yeah. by definition, grand jury a grand subpoena. Jury subpoena right. and, and when you're a prosecutor and you fill out a subpoena, there's a blank on there saying, what crime are you investigating? You have to fill that out. So I'm, I'm very interested to see the actual subpoenas. 
now I, prosecutors sometimes try to be coy about that, and so we try to list sometimes the most generic or non-specific crime possible. We list 371, which just means conspiracy, which could be anything. But in this case, I mean, based on the reporting publicly, it does seem there's been reporting that some of the personnel within the BOP, within the MCC, made false statements, perhaps lied and said they were, were conducting checks every 30 minutes as they were supposed to, but apparently, reportedly, they were not. Or, so, or doctored but, records. But, doctored right. records. But, but, lied, yes. but presumably lied because they were covering up embarrassing conduct on sure. their part, not conspiracy murders, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, we, we know the Washington Post reported that there were, what, eight corrections officers who had been instructed to make sure that Jeffrey Epstein was not alone in the cell. This was after the first attempted su- suicide, yeah. and that didn't happen. Yeah, I think the most likely scenario is exactly that. You had some corrections officers who maybe literally fell asleep on the job or figuratively, and then when they were interviewed about it in the immediate wake of the death, lied and and said, we did the checks as reported every so often, when in fact, it's probably fairly readily provable from surveillance video inside the jail that they didn't. So if I had to guess what the crime is, I would say 1001, prosecutors call it 1001, but false statement. Are these these, uh, subpoenas ever issued for also for, not solely, but in addition, possibly for optics reasons? The things I'm I'm wondering about is whether Attorney General Barr, Bill Barr, who clearly was embarrassed by all of this, wants to show that they are aggressively investigating it. As a prosecutor, you're not supposed to issue right. subpoenas just to make a statement, but right. you certainly are aware of if we issue the subpoena, it can or maybe will leak, get out there to the public, and the public will know we're on this. And I will say, Bill Barr and the Southern District have made a point, I think, since Jeffrey Epstein's death of stressing to the public, we are on this. I mean, they, they've made some fairly aggressive statements, right? Bill Barr made that speech a couple a day or two after where he was He's very- called st- it appalling. Yeah, he and, said, I'm yeah. appalled, I'm angered. He tried yeah. to, I think- distance himself a bit more than appropriate. But he said very clearly the co-conspirators here, the people who worked with Jeffrey Epstein, should not rest easy. And the Southern District issued a statement the day after the death saying, this is a conspiracy case. Our work continues. So I think they've gone... And then the FBI, coincidentally or not, we don't know, but a couple days after went and did the search warrant down in the Virgin Islands on Epstein's private island. So was it pre-planned for that day or did they expedite it? Who knows? But DOJ does seem to be going out of its way to reassure the American public, we are on this, we are taking this seriously, we're moving quickly. Well, look, it does seem like, first of all, that there's there's no evidence for what our president has suggested, <laughs> that, you know, that there was, uh, Epstein was murdered by people, high-powered people, such as the Clintons who feared what he might say. There's absolutely no evidence for that. But there are some really tantalizing questions here about what happened. First of all, just the inexplicable, the idea that the most high-profile inmate in MCC, I assume that's the case because is is El Chapo still they there? Prob- he's probably out serving right, at right, his designated right. facility okay. now, right. so I don't think he's physically there so anymore. So could yeah. be not watched and allowed to commit suicide. Just going over the the timeline here, he's arrested July 26th. July 23rd, there's an incident in which he is alleged to have attempted suicide. A a fellow cellmate says he had a bedsheet around his neck. Uh, He denied it. He's put on suicide uh, watch, taken off six days days. later, July 29th. But as many as eight MCC people were instructed he should not be left alone. He had a new cellmate put in there who was removed the day before. Right. It's inexplicable. And especially, I think that the things that jump out at me, first of all, are the six days 
on Suicide Watch, when you take someone off of Suicide Watch is incredibly intensive. It's labor intensive, right? There's a guard literally watching the person sort of every at least every 15 minutes, I think around the clock. It's almost impossible for a person to commit suicide while on suicide watch. But when you take someone off, you have to, there's a bureaucratic requirement. You have to fill out a report explaining why and what's the plan moving forward. I would want that document right away. I'm sure the investigators already have it. But how does this all happen, not just in general, the, the lapses that you laid out, Michael, but in the shoe? He wasn't just, Jeffrey Epstein wasn't just in the general population here. They had him in the shoe, the special tell housing Tell us what unit. the shoe is. So, and, yeah. and you've been in MCC, so tell us about that. So let me, right. let me step back a second. Right. The MCC is not your normal federal prison. If you've spent any time in prisons, if you if you picture a prison in your head that maybe you've seen, they're usually sort of sprawling, low-lying, they're rarely a second floor, right? Why would you want a second floor for security reasons if you could avoid it? But most of the prisons in the country are big, sort of sprawling, physical areas. The MCC is a cramped, I would say claustrophobic New York City, Manhattan, not quite high rise. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. 13 floors if you if you count the administrative floors and stuff. But it, man, is it claustrophobic. I mean, when you go in there, it is hot. There is almost no natural light. It is a mess. There's stuff leaking down the walls. It's, it smells horrible. It's loud. It's scary. But it's a small physical area. And the shoe is where they house the highest priority potentially endangered prisoners, typically cooperators, which is how I ended up spending time there because when you're a prosecutor- Because you're a cooperator? <laughs> <laughs> no, I checked in in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of time with cooperators, though. The worst, though, you can't. You don't want to get caught behind a count because the count takes forever, and if you get stuck in there for a count, you just have to wait it out. So you learn the tricks. But the cooperators are housed in the shoe and other people who are potentially in danger. And so that is the highest priority little section of the MCC. There were two at the time I was there. I'm not sure if they still have the same two. I don't, I don't want to give away any secrets, any organizational secrets. But the shoe is not a physically big area to patrol, right? There's a very limited number of inmates who are in the shoe. It's your highest priority inmates. And if the reporting's correct that they had two corrections, well, no, let me take that back. Two people one of whom reportedly was a corrections officer, one of whom was playing up from the minors, whatever that phraseology is, you know, someone who was not a full, fully trained person. Completely inexplicable. If you were still at your old job uh, as an assistant U.S. attorney investigating this case, would you be looking at the bank accounts of those correctional workers who uh, <laughs> managed to fall asleep while Epstein was not being watched. I think that's a good idea. And I don't again, I don't want to feed into any conspiracy theories, but you always want to pull the financial records of almost anyone you're investigating for any reason. You never know what you're going to find. Who knows? Who knows what they're going to find? But yeah, a full and complete investigation, you would do that. Well, sure. I guess the other side of that question is incompetence, yeah, a plausible explanation for what happened. It is. It's plausible in that it could well have happened. But what's implausible is how could they have let this, right? That's why I see it as an organizational failure. I mean, look, I don't necessarily expect the attorney general to say, how is that specific prisoner being watched? But it wouldn't have been crazy if he had done that. And how do the powers that be, whether it's the head of the Bureau of Prisons, that's a huge job. Even the warden of the MCC, that's a big job. How do they not keep an eye on that guy in particular and make sure, especially after he tries to kill himself, it's not like this came out of nowhere, reportedly, right? He tried to kill himself six days or right, right. days before. So at that point, there's an extra red flag on this guy. So there is a lot of 
incompetence throughout the Bureau of Prisons. It's, and it's and an plus extra- we yeah. know that he obviously did not want to spend any time in his jail cell at all. He right. had his lawyers coming in there for what, as long as 12 hours that. a day <laughs> so he could sit with them in the conference room and not be right. alone and in his cell. And emptying out the vending yeah. machines. Yeah. Right. That was let's, remarkable. Let's go back to the decision to take Epstein off of suicide watch, right. uh, which you alluded to before, and how that could have happened. And my understanding is it's been reported anyway that Epstein's lawyers made that request. Yep. Would his lawyers have any say about that? Is that an, is that something that you, you that lawyers can actually yeah. argue? Only in the sense that good lawyers, aggressive lawyers, ask everybody for everything all the time, right? They always think. I mean, lawyers think lawyer, especially for very wealthy, high-powered people yeah. like this, the lawyers always right. think they're entitled to special treatment. You know how many letters I got saying, my guy would like to be let out to go to, I had a letter requesting that he get out to go to the Jets game because he had season tickets. Like, are you kidding me? But You didn't let him out? I mean, it's not for the Jets. <laughs> <laughs> not a, um, yeah. But, uh, uh, but that's what lawyers do. They ask for special favors, even if they're ridiculous for their clients, even if they don't think they can really get it. Sometimes the defense lawyer is doing a little bit of a PR. Hey, I'm fighting for you. Even if they know they're not going to get it. All right, I put in the letter. I'm, I'm asking them for this. So it doesn't. It does not surprise me that the lawyer said, "Can you get him out of suicide watch?" And look, suicide watch is a brutal place for a person to be. Right? Yeah, I was Michael just going to ask what what is yeah. involved in suicide watch. I don't. I mean, I don't know that firsthand. I only know based on the reporting. But it sounds like there's. Almost there's round the clock supervision. You're denied any sort of clothing or implement that could be used to harm yourself. It's incredibly intensive. So I understand how a client would want to get out of there and how a lawyer would try to serve the client by saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on them to get you so out by of there. Nothing ta- improper. So about by that. taking him off suicide watch, because he, he did this with a bed sheet, put tied a bed sheet around right, his, reportedly, his, yeah. his neck reportedly. So so he wouldn't have had the bed sheet, but once he was taken off, he would have the bed sheet. I think that's probably from, yeah. from what I've read, yet, yes. Yeah. And also, he would have been watched very intensely, yeah. and he wouldn't have been had that much time by himself. Yeah, I think it's almost unheard of. It's actually, it's very rare for someone. I don't. Again, I'm not fueling theories here, but it's very rare for there to be a suicide in the MCC. When this happened, I tweeted out. I said I was there for. I was at the Southern District for eight and a half years. We, the office, I probably had, I certainly had hundreds of people housed there. We, the office, had thousands upon thousands of defendants housed there. I said, I don't remember there being any suicides in my eight and a half years there from 04 to 12. Certainly of my defendants, and I don't believe of any's that I ever heard of. And I tagged a couple other of my colleagues, one of whom had been there 17 years. And she said, she said yeah, I, never, I don't remember that happening either. So So let's talk a little about where the core investigation into Epstein and his activities goes from here. Obviously, the indictment against him gets withdrawn because he's dead and you can't indict and try a dead man. But he clearly had co-conspirators that's alleged in the indictment. It would seem incumbent upon the U.S. attorney to pursue that as aggressively as they can and bring further indictments. I I am very confident, and this is not based on inside information, I am very, very confident there will be additional indictments in this case. DOJ cannot have signaled this any more clearly. When you have Bill Barr coming out and saying, co-conspirators, don't rest easy. When you have the Southern District saying, we're carrying on with this, this is conspiracy, there's no way leaders of DOJ get out that far publicly unless they know they've got it in their pocket. So, and, and look, the signs have been there from the start. Epstein's indictment in the Southern District refers to at least three co-conspirator employees. They're called employee one, two, and three, co-conspirators. 
obviously, this is this. The more we learn about this ring, the bigger it was. The more geographic area it covered. Dozens and dozens of victims. The number of victims just keeps growing. There, there, this was no one man show. How, how much harder will it be to prosecute those cases with Epstein? dead and and not able to yeah provide no, testimony one thing that's obviously off the table is he can't cooperate right. anymore right and now Although i don't know he had no deal to make and, there was no way that he was going to get any kind of well, lenient treatment from right. the southern district he could have tried yeah but there, but i'll tell you i've made i've cooperated some bad people murderers yeah. a triple murderer my best cooperator ever was a triple murderer but there's ways we know how to we debrief them and they open up and they give testimony and it's wor- it works but i don't know that i would have signed up this guy ever yeah. under any circumstances no, no. so yes yeah, so that possibility remote as it may have been is off the table but there's not really any more obstacles to going after the the only thing that you're missing tactically speaking here is having epstein at the trial table because when you're trying a case in front of a jury as a prosecutor, you want to inflame the jury, not not inappropriately, but you. But it's it's nice as the prosecutor if you can have the head bad guy sitting right there, and his cohorts sitting around him. And by the way, the defendants always try to separate; they always want to be severed. I don't. Want, I can't be tried with Isikoff. He's the worst guy in, of all. I can't be. I hope I'll be tarnished by sitting near him. We always prosecutors always you want are to right stick now, everyone together. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Prosecutors yeah. always want to stick everyone together at the table, so you won't have Jeffrey Epstein at the table. And the, what the defense will end up being is. This was all Epstein. He won't be there, his lawyers, and he won't be there to defend him. So if you see co-conspirators charged, and I think you will, and if they're tried, it'll be, this was all Epstein. My client was a victim. My client was duped by him. My client was taken advantage of by him. My client was was on the victim side, not on the perpetrator side. And it's a little harder to respond to that if you don't have Jeffrey Epstein there in the flesh. Speaking of the, the victims, the, the real victims, yes. I gather that there is going to be a hearing next yeah. week when the indictment is formally withdrawn. And right. at that hearing, the prosecution actually has to... to Enter pleadings, I guess, and then yep. um, the judge, I think, has a, is allowing victims to actually speak um, yes. at the hearing. That, that is that a, how unusual is that? Well, obviously, it's a right. very unusual situation when the defendant is is dead. So we've seen a couple unusual things here, and I know the judge, Richard Berman, not yeah. personally, but I was in front of him for a lot of cases. No relation to Jeffrey Berman, who's the U.S. The attorney. US attorney. Right. The first thing that was unusual is what we call a death nolly. That that's. A combination, I guess, of English, death, and some Latin nolly. But when your defendant dies, you put in a death nolly. And it's it's usually like three sentences. It says, in the case of U.S. versus Jeffrey Epstein, we hereby certify Jeffrey Epstein died on whatever date. We therefore move to dismiss, period, end of story. You send it in, judge signs it, that's that. The Southern District said quite a bit more in their death nolly here, and they went out of their way again to signal this is an ongoing case. And there's, it's much more verbose than you would normally put into a death nolly. And I've never heard of any sort of live court proceeding on a death nolly. The judge always just signs it. It goes on the docket, and that's yeah. that. I think Judge Berman is, is a smart judge. He's a down-the-middle judge. He's When his name comes out of the hopper, literally there's actually a hopper where you pull the judge's name out. Well, you don't, but a clerk pulls the name out of it's not like a oh good he's he's great for the prosecution oh no he's terrible he's he is right down the middle but he's aware he's definitely aware of the spotlight that's on this case and i think he wants to make sure that so so this idea of having this proceeding which he's going to have next week is unheard of and i think he wants to make sure that there's no possible way he or or the system can be accused of not giving the victims literally a voice. And so I think that's what we'll see. Now, if I'm the Southern District, I don't know how I feel about I, I like the fact that the victims are going to have a chance to speak. But if I have an ongoing investigation and those those victims are my key witnesses, I'm not in love with the idea of them speaking publicly 
Well, presumably, unless and until I'm ready, they'll be advised as to what they should say. Well, and is what it possible they should that, not say? Well, does you, that create you a want problem? to be careful, though, if you're the prosecutor. Does there. that create a problem in terms of tainting the jury pool or anything like that? That argument will be made. Yeah, I, I assure you that whenever these co-conspirators get charged, if and when I think they will, that'll be one of the arguments that all of these public statements made by DOJ. The fact that Judge Berman held this hearing has tainted our jury pool. But the jury pool taint argument never goes far for me. I mean, we look, we tried, we, the country, tried O.J. Simpson and John Gotti and and you name it, because that's what the jury selection process is about. You, you have to you weed out people who already have formed opinions. It's not perfect, but— I should it, point out that this comes at a time that uh, Harvey Weinstein is trying to have example. his trial removed from Manhattan. Right, right. Because he says he can't get a fair trial. Right. Uh, we have pretty good procedures that that weed that stuff out. But it'll be an interesting proceeding next week. It's, it is very unusual. By the way, just for a second, going back to the conspiracy theories and rebutting them, I think it is important to point out that Bill Barr did in a, in uh, just the other day in a speech. He went out of his way to say that he has seen absolutely no evidence to suggest that this was not a suicide. Because I hadn't right. heard what the Justice Department had really said about this, but they are being pretty clear about that. Yeah, I think that's clear, and that's that's what the medical New York City medical examiner right. concluded as well. So. Right. Well, it's clear that there's a, a lot more beats to this story, and we'll be uh, talking about it on uh, Skullduggery. But uh, Ellie, thanks for coming in thanks and sharing your insights. Anytime. Thanks, guys. We now have, as our next guest, Anna Merlin, author of the excellent book, Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. She is also a staff senior reporter for Geomedia, otherwise known as Gizmo Media. Gizmodo. Gizmodo. Okay. Anna, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, I should point out that Anna was one of the star voices we had in Conspiracy Land, our uh, six-episode podcast on the Seth Rich case. And no sooner did that end that we had a whole new burst of conspiracy theories arising out of the Jeffrey Epstein case, fueled once again by our president, who sort of put the uh, some of the conspiracy theories in play. Anna, what did you make of the flurry of conspiracy theories about the Epstein case? Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary how close to the mainstream those were. You know, it's not just the president. Obviously, it's him, too. But, you know, like an hour after Jeffrey Epstein died, the New York Post ran a piece supposedly interviewing a former inmate at MCC where Epstein was being held claiming, you know, that there was no physical way for him to die by suicide in his cell. You know, like this happened immediately and it was from all sides. And so obviously it tied into older conspiracy theories like the so-called Clinton body count, but it also just tapped into a whole new breed of sort of free-floating ambient suspicion. It's pretty amazing. I should point out that the New York Post has also reported, I believe in the last couple of days, that Attorney General William Barr supposedly Mm -hmm. secretly came to MCC and had a clandestine meeting with Jeffrey Epstein prior to his death, which sounds about as improbable uh, an account as that I can imagine. Apparently, it was attributed to a former mob associate of John Gotti, and the New York Post ran with this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they sure did. Well, yeah, you you talked about how close to the mainstream this was. And I went, I read this op-ed piece in the, in the New York Times that you wrote back in uh, 2017, and you talk about this thin—it was a nice phrase—this thin membrane in which conspiracy— land to coin a phrase uh, yeah. moves to moves to the mainstream just talk about how that happens and how that mm -hmm. that apparently is increasingly happening yeah well we know historically that in times of social unrest and social upheaval that there is more sort of conspiratorial thinking in the United States historically it's just a thing that happens when we're sort of asking ourselves questions about what we believe as a society we see sort of an outgrowth of conspiracy theories as a as a result of that. In a way, it's a very predictable thing. But what's happening here is a little bit different, obviously, because we have not just a president, but a party in power promoting conspiracy theories for political ends. So we're seeing something a little bit different, which is a group of people realizing that they can direct conspiracy theories against their political opponents to in sort of a profitable way. And so we're running into those two sort of forces at the same time, leading to seemingly just a profusion of conspiracy theories on all sides at every sort of level of society, people who are really disempowered, people who have the most powerful job on earth and sort of everywhere in between. So the rise of intense partisanship also mm. incentivizes these kinds of conspiracy theories. It does. I mean, I think I forget who wrote about this. I think it was Yusinski and Parent, who are the Florida professors who have done a lot of work on conspiracy theory research, you know, throughout the last hundred years. But they always point out that conspiracy theories are an extension of our normal politics. You know, there are normal politics sort of heightened and made more extreme. And so from that standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, though Epstein conspiracy theories are a little bit different. Those are much more sort of a natural outgrowth of how how suspicious we've all become as a society. Yeah. Now, I should say that, and I think you've made this point, that um, every conspiracy theory has some kernels of real facts that they're yeah. building on. And certainly yeah. in the Epstein case alone, and we were discussing this with our first guest, I mean, there's lots of suspicious circumstances about what happened at MCC, the jail yeah. where he was allowed to commit suicide, even though he had yeah. been on suicide watch, he gets taken off suicide watch. Eight guards, we've now learned, were instructed, or eight guards and officials at the jail were instructed not to leave him alone, and yet he mm. is somehow left alone for several hours. It does seem that there are some inexplicable things that happened here that allowed him to kill himself. I think that you could say that they're inexplicable if we rely on sort of an idealized vision of the criminal justice system. I mean, MCC is notoriously unsafe. The New York prison system in general has been subject to a lot of allegations of brutality, mistreatment, freezing temperatures, um, the medical system that has been at work uh, at New York City facilities has been sued a bunch of times. And so, you know, the fact that Jeffrey Epstein was either left alone through, you know, negligence or was given preferential treatment because of who he was. I don't find either of those particularly surprising. But, I mean, just to that last point, in terms mm -hmm. of why this case may be particularly ripe for conspiracy theories, um, 
Yeah. It goes beyond what was going on in MCC. In fact, in some ways, it's the whole case. It's the, it's the idea yes. that the, here's was this plutocrat who got favorable treatment. You know, at every at, step at, of the way. At every step of the way. And, you know, in really? some ways, I think people who are susceptible to conspiracy theories are people who feel shafted, who feel powerless and feel mm-hmm. that there are other people out there who, you know, who are, you know, who are getting always getting favorable treatment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I see a lot. People feeling completely disenfranchised by, you know, the society at large, by the political system, feeling like they are not able to participate or get this preferential treatment and other people are. It's the basis of like a lot of financial conspiracy theories, for instance, this idea that, you know, the rich get tax loopholes. So why can't I? Why can't I affect these weird, you know, tax schemes? So, yeah, I mean, I think that the suspicion about how Jeffrey Epstein was treated is well-founded. You know, I mean, we know that he got a sweetheart deal in Florida. I was writing today about one of the many lawsuits that's been filed against his estate that basically talks about him getting outrageously preferential treatment, even when he was on work release after that 2008 charge, even when he was on house arrest and wearing an ankle monitor. I mean, he was able to continue abusing women and girls long after he should have. Right. You know, I, I it, look, in many ways, he is exhibit A for everything that's wrong with the criminal justice system and how mm-hmm. the rich and powerful can game the system in ways that the rest of us yeah. can't. Um, and so I think for that reason alone, the Epstein case will loom large in the annals of American law. Well, But that said, let's go back to our president sure. and uh, his retweet of this guy, Terrence Williams, who put it out there that this was a part of the Clinton body count and that the Clintons Mm -hmm. had arranged to off the guy. I mean, you know, we've seen so many examples of President Trump fueling conspiracy theories from the campaign, uh, you know, Ted Cruz's father and the Kennedy Mm -hmm. assassination to, you know, so many others. But put Trump's role in this in context. I mean, when we talk about a thin membrane between the mainstream and sort of the further reaches of conspiracy dumb, President Trump is the person who made that membrane so thin. I mean, what we saw in that retweet is that he's able to take, you know, this very fringe commentator and immediately elevate him and immediately elevate the idea that he's promoting. So a lot of people who hadn't heard of the so-called Clinton body count, which has been promoted since what, the early 90s, right, since Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, suddenly had it reintroduced to them. It's incredibly efficient. And he's realized, you know, that Twitter is such an efficient tool for doing this and for guiding the conversation. And indeed, it, you know, dominated the headlines for what, two days? Right. It actually, you know, I don't know that it actually began during his days of governor. Uh, The real uh, launch of the Clinton body count was the Vince Foster case in 1993. The former deputy White House counsel, former law partner of Hillary, who goes out to Fort Marcy Park in Virginia in the middle of the day in July of, uh, of 1993. Did you notice a lot of these things happen in July? I mean, Seth (laughs) Rich was in July. Jeffrey Epstein is in July. You're right. So the allegations that, you know, Bill Clinton was running some kind of corrupt empire 
in Arkansas and, you know, committing various kinds of retribution against his political opponents was from when he was governor. But you're absolutely right that the idea of the body count didn't come up until Vince Foster's suicide was falsely painted as as a murder. Right. So, and, and then I should just should point out and then people began stitching other examples of other people who had some relationship to the Clintons, no matter how attenuated, who mm-hmm. Died and you know right. died under circumstances that may or may not have been suspicious. Although I should point out that uh, I do remember during my Kennedy assassination obsession days that uh, there was a body count of people who had knowledge of the Kennedy assassination who also seemed to have been allegedly offed under mysterious circumstances. So the meme was there. It was just uh, you know found new ways to adopt itself so circumstances right. yeah. yeah well and it's an easy one right because everyone's gonna die sooner or later so yes <laughs> so yeah. anna here's my question about trump do you view him as a classic conspiracy theorist or is he just a kind of a cynical manipulator of conspiracy theories to advance his own political interests right so i think that answering that question would require us to know what's in his heart or his mental processes, which is hard for me to do. Good, good luck with right? that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hesitate to ascribe motives to anyone ever. I don't think that it's something we're equipped to do as as journalists. Uh, I would say that the sort of chaotic nature of his attention and what he promotes suggests to me that he seems to, as my read, is that he kind of grabs things out of thin air that he thinks might be useful, whether it's misinformation, half-truths, conspiracy theories, and just kind of throws them at the wall to see, you know, what works, what might help, what might be beneficial. But yeah, it's really, it's really hard to tell, right, how he selects ideas. And and let's remember that, uh, and we dealt with this in conspiracy land, but the birther uh, uh, phase of Donald Trump's career was something that advanced his standing in the polls and put him on the map as a potential presidential candidate back in 2011. It it works for him. Yeah. Right, right. So he might have that might have been the first time when he had a sense that like this was going to be really effective because, you know, I mean, we, we forget that President Obama had to have a press conference to release his long term birth certificate. He had to acknowledge Donald Trump, which I imagine, you know, again, this is projecting, but I imagine was a little bit intoxicating for somebody who was often not taken seriously and treated like a clown. And we know through a lot of reporting that one of Trump's obsessions is being taken seriously and treated with respect by a political establishment he thinks doesn't respect him. So we've uh, talked a lot about why people end up dabbling in conspiracy theories, Mm. how they take hold, um, how they migrate from conspiracy world to the mainstream. But one of the things that I don't hear a lot of commentary on is what you actually do about it. What is there? What what is the prescriptive element? I mean, Mm. you know, I remember back in the day when, you know, we were working at Newsweek, uh, you often just didn't write about conspiracy theories because you didn't want to give them oxygen. You just say, okay, and you sort of can't do that anymore. Right. Yeah. I agree. So how, I, so how I, do you deal with it? I mean, this is ironically, this is the same discussion that happened around Donald Trump's candidacy is like, do we write about it and give it oxygen or do we ignore it? And we see we see, I guess, how well that went. I am pretty pessimistic in some ways about containing misinformation or disinformation broadly, not just conspiracy theories. I think we've built these incredibly effective pipelines 
to spread information um, so large that you know major actors like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube don't even precisely know what's on their platforms. So I think it's very difficult to figure out a containment strategy that contains just misinformation and not other forms of protected free speech. And I think that we have sort of rightly relied on a pretty generous read of certainly like free speech laws to make sure that we're not curtailing people's right to express themselves. Um, so sometimes I tend to talk about things like, oh, maybe if we had more media literacy classes earlier in people's lives, you know, like if high school students were required to do that, that they would be a little bit more discerning about sources of information. But I, <laughs> I don't know, you know, other than being on guard for disinformation all the time and constantly evaluating what we're being told, you know, which can lead people down pretty conspiratorial corners in and of itself. Yeah. I, I don't feel like I've come up with a good answer to this question. I mean, it's, it strikes me as, as a kind of national crisis, because if you yeah. can't contain them, if there's no really, if there aren't really effective ways to mitigate them, then, you know, we, it infects our politics. And I mean, it's just, it's- it Infects our culture. Our culture. And, and I should point out that the steps that Facebook and Twitter and the other social media platforms have taken to try to curb some of this, you know, clear disinformation that's out there only fuels more conspiracy theories, right? That yeah, you have conservatives yeah. claiming that there's a, a, a cabal at Google that's suppressing, uh, you know, their uh, their arguments, their free speech. Um, yeah, yeah. Though we do know, and I will say this, that deplatforming individual conspiracy theorists does work. And I've been thinking about this a lot with Alex Jones. Alex Jones's audience has dropped precipitously because of all the social media bans. You know, he's been banned from virtually every service possible. And it turns out that people don't just visit his website on their own. So his particular ability to spread misinformation has been extremely curtailed. And I know this because he got mad at me recently and did a 20-minute segment about his lawyer gave him a copy of my book. And he got very um, emotional about it. And so usually, you know, what did, I would, he, what I would, did he say? About he said you? I was a, um, a satanic witch and a, a killer of America. And, you know, it's it's fine. Was he, there anything he, you objected to that he said? Or, uh, and can you rebut that? <laughs> yeah. Can you show <laughs> that you're not? Right. It's fine. He can he can say whatever he wants. I wish him the best. But um, I didn't realize for like a day that he had done this. Because usually, you know, this happens to me quite a bit in my line of work that somebody will get upset with me and sort of try to direct their their followers ire at me. And I didn't know that it was Alex Jones for quite a while. You know, I, I put it together. But the fact that it was so hard for me to figure out what was going on and the fact that I wasn't immediately flooded with vitriol is uh, is pretty telling, you know, that at least as far as containing individual actors by kicking them off of platforms that does work. I don't know if it's a broad solution because I don't like giving social media companies that much power to regulate speech, but it, there's no question that in his case and in the case of other really bad actors like say Milo Yiannopoulos, it, it has worked. You know, these people are in financial trouble. Well, that is the uh, one positive thing I've heard on this subject yet. Um, so uh, in this era of national crisis over conspiracy theories, thanks to Anna, we just got some good news about uh, some potential to begin curbing it. Anna, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery, and we will have you back as our regular conspiracy analyst. 
Cool. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Ellie Honig, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and author Anna Merlin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on Yahoo News YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.